Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Paul Haywood, the author and columnist, and John Cross of the Daily Mirror. It's an exaggeration to say the nation stopped in its tracks for World Cup qualifiers against San Marino and Albania. The visit of Poland to Wembley on Wednesday night might be mildly diverting. But questions need to be asked. Are we falling out of love with international football? Does the England team mean as much as it once did? Is the tribal intensity of club football taking over? Now, Paul... You're researching and writing a biography of the national team. By looking at the past and studying the present, does that convince you international football has a future? Oh, definitely, Mike. I think the first point I'd make is that there is no club game in the world that's going to attract 26 million television viewers as the England, you know, Croatia World Cup semi-final did in Russia in 2018. The great asset that international football has, in my view, is that it belongs to everybody. They can't sell it to a, you know, a, a speculator, a hedge fund, a Russian oligarch, a, a Gulf oil state. By definition, it belongs to all of us. So there is a sense of everybody owning the national team and it represents everybody. So although there isn't the same level of enthusiasm these days between tournaments, people get fed up with friendlies and you know, and qualifiers when they interrupt the the Premier League programme, the Super Sunday cycle. Nevertheless, when tournaments come round, if fans of the England team and other countries think the team has a chance and they like watching them and they're excited by them, it becomes a national phenomenon again. And I think it always will. Mm. Does that resonate with you, John? Because I know, you know you're a big fan of, of international football, aren't you? Yeah, I am, and I, I'm 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 equally as passionate about it as as Paul, really. And and that's the point, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing that captures the imagination of of the nation uh, as a World Cup, as a European Championships. And honestly, if you needed proof as well of what it means to players, I think never more so. The San Marino game took a lot of criticism. There's a lot of detractors there, but try saying that to Ollie Watkins who scored a hell of a lot of goals in the Premier League this season 
and he's doing very nicely as a top flight striker. Thank you very much. But also, it meant the world to him to score in his England debut. And I think that, that basically that highlights and illustrates just the importance, I think, still of England to players, what it means. There's no one more passionate about playing for England and captaining them than Harry Kane. And I, I think that's fantastic. Listen, it's been this strange season. No one can escape that. And it's it's been fraught with difficulties. Of course, managers are, are sort of saying, why on earth are we having them these games now? But they're World Cup qualifiers. You know, they're vitally important games. I do actually think that maybe something could have given internationally in this particular calendar in this year. And if that were the case, then I, I would have argued then that would have been the Nations League. I still think even in the autumn, we didn't think it would be still as bad as it is now in terms of the pandemic. And I just think that ultimately, international football, not everyone supports a huge Premier League team. And I think this is so overlooked and so patronising to a lot of fans who are so passionate about following England all over the world, not just in Europe. And I think England means a hell of a lot to a lot of people in, in this country. And it really annoys me to hear even ex-England internationals who, who took a lot of pleasure and a lot of fun from playing and scoring for England to knock it down. And that really annoys me because I think England is just as important, if not more so than, than ever. And I think Gareth Southgate has done a wonderful job in giving back some of that pride and, and, and importance to, to the England national team. Mm. We'll, we'll we'll look at in some depth at the job that Gareth Southgate's doing a bit later on, Paul. But to amplify John's point, you know, you look at the flags in England games, and it's you know, with great respect, Notts County, lower lower league teams, non league teams. So there is this, I don't unanimity of purpose, if you like. You know, you've been researching the national team from from year dot. Has interest in that national team been constant or is it like many other aspects of elite sport, cyclical? And and the other point is, can it still produce heroes? Well, it's certainly cyclical. And if you go back to the very beginning, international football struggled against the FA Cup for decades. The FA Cup was the defining competition in English football and international football was almost a sideshow to that, really. It was only in the um, in the... 1940s and 50s, I would argue that the, the the national team became such a strong focus of attention. But of course, we're in a unique position in England because England entered the World Cup for the first time in 1950 and they've reached one final in that time. So I think unlike any other footballing superpower, England are, England are constantly grappling with this syndrome, this, um, this, this history of underachievement. So that stalks everything that happens in this in this cyclical process in other words england put together a good team you know whether it's the golden generation or this current uh, you know really exciting crop of young players people want to get you know enthused by it and, and optimistic about it but underlying that optimism is always this kind of note of doubt so people don't believe it until they see it understandably if you've only reached one final since 1950 but what i'm saying i suppose is that the the, the english feeling about the national side and the perception of it is complicated because of its very unusual history. Other countries, other major powers just don't have this history. They have trophies in the in the cabinet to kind of offset the, you know, the periods where people get lose interest. 
But the other unique thing about England, of course, is that the, the, the sheer power and pervasiveness of the Premier League has, let's face it, smashed international football out of the way, really. It's made England a secondary concern in the in the minds of uh, many fans. But I just come back to this point that when a tournament starts and when people look at the team and they start to see possibilities and the team starts to progress and play well, you know, as they did say in Euro 96, then the England team is 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 public property. It's a public asset and everybody gets excited and animated by it. Mm. Do you think, John, you know, do the politics and the club rivalries get in the way, you know, as, as Paul was alluding to there. And does that mean, do you feel, that England can never consistently recreate the intensity of representing that unites other home nations? You know, I, I saw a clip on social media the other day where you had Luka Modric in tears when he was given a standing ovation by his Croatian mm. teammates. You know, you've had Gareth Bale talking about how much Wales means to him. Can England ever have that intensity and passion for playing for the shirt? Do you know, it was it was the Gareth Bale one that really caught my eye last week. I, I'm a massive Gareth Bale fan, and I think what he's done, he's been the, the most successful in medal terms, British export of all time. And yet, actually, it, it, in England, we kind of, I think we're a bit sneering about him, really. We'd like to put him down. We don't take him sort of that seriously. Oh, did he really do that at Real Madrid? I think sometimes we struggle with it. And yet the Welsh nation are just so incredibly passionate about him. They love this guy. He absolutely means everything to him. And I love the way that he spoke in that Welsh press conference last week. To me, that was how much it meant for Gareth Bale. He it, it really meant so much to him. He spoke with so much passion. He was enjoying it. He was laughing. He was smiling. He was enjoying the moment. Could we ever get that with England? No chance. It's just that whether we're talking about the club rivals that used to divide the, the golden generation between Liverpool and Man United, or even now I see it constantly sniping at Harry Kane. And it... it yeah. I just think it's it's sad. You you never find me as a journalist trying to sort of kind of knock the media as such, but I just think it's it's club rivalries. It's those, it's Arsenal fans saying, "Oh, he's a cheat. He's doing this with his body to draw fouls. He's you know diving on," or whether it's Chelsea fans or West Ham or whoever it might be. And I just think it's can you not come together just every three months and say, "Actually, this guy." Wow, we're in the presence of greatness here. He's, he, I think to me, it's incredible that he's gone so long without scoring for, for England. 16 months, four, nine, seven days and six games without a goal. But he will break England's goal scoring records. I'm sure of it. And he would surely go down as one of the greats in England's history. He's fantastic, I think, for what he does. He's improving as a player. He is the reason why we go into the Euros thinking we've got a chance here. He's the he's the difference between a, t a nearly team and a team that could win it, and and yet still we st so struggle with that trying to get behind the nation because we're divided by petty club rivalries. I don't think we'll ever overcome it. Maybe that's the reason why, until we reach the latter stages of a tournament, not everyone feels that they can completely get on board and get swept away with it. But I do think it's a bit of a sad and sorry reflection, but I think it's a true reflection. Again, this is um, this goes back a long way. I mean, in the in the late seventies, Ron Greenwood went to Anfield to speak to the Liverpool players, and the Liverpool players, you know, great strong players with 
trophies all over the shop, told Ron Greenwood that they'd rather play England games on the road if it was at all possible because they associated Wembley at that time with abuse and tribal hatred and being shouted at. Gary Neville was actually glad when the old Wembley Stadium was knocked down because, again, he associated playing at Wembley with drunk Tottenham and Arsenal fans, as he called them, um, shouting at him <laughs> as he was trying to take a throw-in. So, uh, you know, this is, <laughs> this, this is a long-standing problem in the English game, this, this refusal, as you said, Crossy, to put all that aside and say, well, actually, this is, this is everybody's team, let's get behind it. Yeah, it really is. And Frank, you know, Frank Lampard, I mean, when we think about sort of, you know, England fans and Frank Lampard, Frank Lampard, look at his record for England, Paul. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. Ashley Cole, with, I find myself wrapped up in this debate about, oh, you know, no one ever appreciated Ashley Cole for, for what he was. Yes, we did. Every England reporter on the road who followed Ashley Cole's career went through, I, I, I certainly did anyway, going through about three or four seasons where we thought, well, the best player in the whole squad is Ashley Cole. <laughs> it wasn't. It should have been Wayne Rooney, maybe, but it was Ashley Cole. And it's just, you know, people get poisoned by uh, other fans shouting abuse or giving him stick, and suddenly it becomes, oh, you know, we 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 underestimated Ashley Cole. He was a really good player, but you didn't give him credit. Well, actually, we did. But people were just getting swept along by the kind of the fan reaction. And it's, just, it's, it's sad, really, that we can't be a little bit more unified and together, but I don't think we are at all. Mm, yeah, it could be argued that he didn't really help himself in terms of um, no, taking no, the, the Trappist, Trappist Monk approach to uh, football work no. communication, did he? Let's look at the broader question, and it's something you hinted at earlier on, Paul. Do you think we need to rein in all this football's coming home nonsense? You know, you look at... The the bravado, the bravado, let's say, the nationalistic bravado of, yes, we're going to bid for the 2030 World Cup. Well, frankly, you look at the geopolitics of football, there's no chance. Do people in power in English football understand why that sentiment is so out of tune with the modern world? I hope so, because it would be a disastrous way to approach any World Cup bid. I mean, surely we've learned that lesson by now. I mean, to put it in perspective... The laws of football were written in 1863. The first World Cup was 1930. It was so long ago. England may have, you know, invented the laws of the game and conceived the game of football, but it doesn't own the game of football. It's not the, it's not the world headquarters of, of, of the world's favourite game. And, and frankly, the rest of the world laughs at us when we try to present ourselves as the custodians of the great game. You know, it, it worked for, I'd say... 50 to 80 years after the first international match in 1872. But it sure as hell doesn't work now because it's it's associated in people's minds around the world with with English presumption, English arrogance, you know, the 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 empire. It's a kind of and they would look at us and say, well, if, if that's all you've got, if that's if that's what you're relying on, falling back on for a, a World Cup bid, you know, it, it's it's frankly not very convincing, this 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 stale idea that that people are sick of hearing. And it still pops up from time to time. And I came across, I was reminded the other day of that time that Dave Richards, who was then um, the Premier League chairman, stepped in a fountain at a conference in the, um, in the <laughs> Middle East after saying, he swears he wasn't drinking, but he, he, after saying that, um, that, that FIFA came along and stole football from England. The, the, you still hear that, that, that voice, that tendency... And and the rest of the world finds it not only risible but a complete turn off. So if if England bids for a 
a World Cup, it needs to present a, a modern kind of forward-looking image and not be stuck in a past that just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Coming to the, the future or the near future, John, you know, we have got significant a significant portion of the Euros in this country. Is this Euros, do you think, a time after everything that everything's been everyone's been through over the last twelve months? Is it a time for football to reset the Euros finals? Yeah, it's a good it's a good it's a good chance to bring us together again, I think, a little bit. Uh I don't know quite what the Euros is going to look like. I still can't get my head around it. I, I am excited by it. I do think it will be a really good occasion, but I still wonder how many countries we're going to be playing in, how many cities can host games, what about fans, will they be allowed in? Still, There's still many questions, aren't there? I mean, people are sort of talking a good game, and yet really... We're less than three months away from it, and it just feels—it feels a long way actually from from reality still, and that worries me really. But I hope so. I do think it's it's something that could be incredibly exciting. What's it going to look like? Well, you know, will we need a sort of a, a vaccination passport to to get in? And, and there's so many questions. There's so many issues. I think you know who can travel. Can fans travel? I, I mean, it's impossible to think that they can. And so it feels like it's going to be a bit of a diluted tournament. I was never quite sure about the tournament and the concept in the first place. But can you imagine the possible worst time to have this continental championship than now? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's the timing is, it's been terrible, really. But I'd like to think it will give us some, some pride back. I do think there'll be a lot of, Tub thumping and Gareth Southgate are played into this. You know, we certainly did it on our back page. You know, Gareth Southgate talking about putting the smiles back on the nation's faces. And listen, football has as a as a wonderful ability to do that, really, and lift the mood and get people behind us again. I I, I mean, we go into it. I think with with a fantastic looking team, so many forward options. It's it's really exciting at the moment. So we shouldn't lose sight of that. But I I do worry about what the how exactly the tournament will look like. I think it's a bit, you know, we won't know that, I don't think. UEFA meet next month to, to discuss the whys and the wherefores and how it will look. I still don't think they'll have a definite action plan even after they meet next week. I think it will be left until a little bit later on to decide who, when, why and how, to be honest. Mm. Assuming that we do get a Euros, the finals you know, are not, Yet another casualty. I can't see that happening, to be honest. But what do you think the key decisions for Gareth Southgate before the championships uh, will be, Paul? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, uh, what I really hope, Mike, is that we don't spend the next two months having a bun fight about who he leaves out or who he's going to leave out. Because if it, well, the, it, it logically, it's quite obvious that some good players are going to be left out of the squad and some very good players are going to be left out of the starting eleven. And I think if it, it, there's a danger that the English public's going to just just lapse into this um, negativity around team selection and say, oh, look, he's left out Phil Foden, he's left out Jack Grealish, and it will become all about the team selection. I, I, I think what, 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 what you see is that every single international manager uses the time between tournaments to try things out, to experiment, to come up with different options. Uh, they were talking on television yesterday about 
having more than one system at this European Championship. And, it, and, it, and it's vital that no team ever goes, no serious team ever goes into a, a tournament with only one way of playing, because that history tells you that that's, that's not effective. I mean, even in 1966, England played three wingers, played a winger in each of the three group games before switching to the wingless, wingless wonders. The wingless wonders wasn't this religion that was, you know, set in stone before the tournament kicked off. So, so Gareth Southgate has done exactly what he should have been doing in the last um, 18 months, and that's working out, assessing players, grading players, and working out different systems that he might be able to employ according to circumstance and the quality of the opposition which might sound like a, a long-winded way of avoiding your question, Mike, which is uh, <laughs> who, who should actually play. Um, I mean, the, the issues would be, of course, whether Nick Pope is now the uh, first-choice goalkeeper or Pickford, who plays at left-back, Chilwell or Shaw. Is he going to go with Stones and Maguire in central defence or does he go for a left-right option and say Stones and Mings? Has Mings done enough to displace Maguire, is is Maguire potentially accident-prone once per at least once per game? And then the big question that everybody's obsessing about, the, the, the so-called double pivot, which is a phrase that amuses me. If he plays two central midfielders, they're not going to be they're not going to be scrappers, tacklers, screening players. They're going to be players who can play. So is that such a bad thing? And then of course in the four in the four or so forward positions, he's got a real problem on his hands because he's going to have to leave out um, some seriously exciting players. Personally, the first two names on my team sheet would be Kane and Foden, and then Mason Mount would be very close behind. Yeah, Mason Mount is is you know he's impressed Thomas Tuchel at Chelsea. John, he's done exactly the same at international level. He is the emerging talent in the English game, isn't he? He is, and what I really like about him is that he can play in that in that double pivot. Um, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because I think Gareth Southgate talked about him as about he how he's developed as a player, but also just sort of physically as well. And there's no doubt about it. I think that longer term, I think he'll be a more central player for England. But he can also play as one of those front three. And he's so important. He's statistically, he, what he provides the team, you know, with goals and assists. I, I think it's rare that you see such a gifted, talented player, and he really is. If you can't accept that he's he's a little bit special, he's got lots of skill and ability and vision, then then there's something wrong because he, he just he, he provides X factor each each and every week for Chelsea. And he sort of can really split games, split defenses, win very tight affairs, and be the d decisive factor in in those games. And I think also what what Mason Mount gives you is hard work. He gets through so much work and so much running, and he closes down. He, he you know, he's a terrific player from that regard. It's rare that you get a gifted, I think, player who works so hard as, and and as hard as Mason Mount. So I do think Mason Mount has suddenly emerged as, in the last year or so, as, as, as someone that is so important for England. And I don't really blame Gareth, actually, because he sort of made a little pot shot yesterday post-match, didn't he, and saying that when I was picking, when Frank Lampard was picking him in the autumn, I was picking him and basically people weren't taking it seriously. And now suddenly Thomas Tuchel's picking him week in, week out. They're taking him a bit more seriously and don't, you know, don't give England so much stick. He's probably onto something, to be honest, because he's just... I don't know why people have taken so long to realise what a good player he is. We had this kind of Mount or Grealish debate 
I know quite where we got so fixated on either or because uh, they are different players. But Mount is absolutely one of the first names on that team sheet, as Paul rightly says. Such a good player. Mm, yeah, when we mention Jack Grealish, are we talking, Paul, about the curse of the maverick? You know, foot, England teams have been notorious in the past for leaving out, should we say, quixotic players. You know, we were in the week where Frank Worthington passed away. You know, one of the great uh, entertainers who I think had eight caps. Do we still, at international level, mistrust talent that we can't quite quantify or or trust? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it was certainly true in Frank Worthington's era when Tony Curry and Alan Hudson and Charlie George and Peter Osgood and all those players, they won a handful of caps each. I think now is there's a, there's, a, there's a different type of judgment, really, because it's not that Jack Grealish is the kind of one creative player in a sea of mediocrity. You know, that, that, that does happen sometimes. And this player gets seized upon as the messiah, the saviour, you know, the, 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 the guy who can unlock the opposition. A bit the way, the way Glenn Hoddle did, really. You know, Glenn Hoddle was regarded as the kind of, uh, as the one potential genius in the English game. But Jack Grealish is surrounded by many other tremendously uh, skillful, technically accomplished young players. So... It, it's it's not as vital, I don't think, that England have a have a have a, a creative a maverick type of player because they've got players who can make things happen. Foden and Rashford and Sancho and all these guys can make things happen in the game. They can change games in a moment, which is what Grealish can do. So although the way he changes games is is slightly different and it's it's a bit of a throwback because he's kind of slightly slower on the ball and he's more thoughtful and he and he you know he's, he he doesn't play that kind of ice hockey style that some of them play he dwells on the ball a bit more maybe takes an extra touch and has a think and then does something clever these other players are also doing clever things and changing games but they're doing it at a much quicker pace so you'll end up with the, with the same result i think it's just a question of whether you look at jack grealish and say you want that type of creative player as opposed to the other types of creativity that Gareth Southgate's already got in the squad. Yeah. Uh, John, we we call the England manager's job the impossible job. Is that a convenient narrative or actually probably an approximation of the, of the truth? You know, you've seen a lot of England managers in your time, as we all have. Is it as difficult as it's made out to be? Yeah. And then some, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I think, you know, I think Gareth Southgate has made a terrific job on it. And I actually think, I think he's almost redefined what the, the England manager has to be. In that place, I think before then, we've we've looked to managers to be the all-encompassing uh, sort of motivator, manager that picks the team, manager that does all the coaching, brings them all together, does absolutely everything. And the, And the fact is, I think that actually... Southgate has redefined it as kind of some sort of, I don't know, diplomatic role <laughs> because mm. he's he he brings together every so often a group of players who are brilliantly talented and just need to be almost fitted into their positions and, and the way of playing and trying to bring their best out of them, giving them the best opportunity to progress. You can't really tell me that they do need too much coaching. And it's it's almost about man management. 
And I love the way that he's been so clever in giving the players their head, giving this sort of kind of leadership group, giving the players responsibility. And he's almost said to the players, look, I'll be the figurehead, but you go and you go and do it. And I just I love that way about him. He's very easy and you know, sometimes you know, I'd see people getting annoyed about that kind of double pivot yesterday. Oh, we're too negative against Albania. And, you know, I, I think you've got to... England did play a back four yesterday when I think he wasn't absolutely sure going into these. He definitely was going to play a four against San Marino, but was he going to do it against Albania? I think you might see him play a back three. I don't absolutely know against Poland because they've got a better team and sort of world-class striker in Lewandowski. But it's those little... Bits around the edges that, yes, he has to make the calls on, but there's not too many of them. And he just, he's almost become, you know, a member of the diplomatic service as much as England manager. And he's, <laughs> I just don't know that you need that all-encompassing kind of massive managerial figurehead like a Jose Mourinho or someone like that, leaders to glory anymore, because ultimately it'll be the players that do it for you. I was sort of making a joke of this last week when we were sort of laughing about who on earth could take over Gareth Southgate. Well, I tell you who. I think it's Graham Potter. Graham Potter is kind of almost the next the next Gareth Southgate. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to take him away from Brighton, Paul. Don't worry. But um, but I just, just think you know he's easygoing. He speaks really well. His team plays quite nice, attractive football, and basically gives the players responsibility. And I just think. That's what it's about, basically. I think that, that, that Southgate, because he, he embraces the FA, he embraces St George's Park, he, he gets what football means and he gets the politics of football. He's just the absolute identicate of the manager. Yes, it's as tough as ever and you get all the pressure and the fallout, but I do think he is doing this job on, a, on many levels, not just being a football manager. Yeah, well, he certainly closed down Camp Paranoia, hasn't he? Which I think is, you know, a great you know, feather in his cap. You know, Paul, how do you think he stands up against his predecessors? And give us an, an idea, if you could, please, of your favourite England managers that you've had to work with. Well, firstly, I think the context to Gareth Southgate is, is, is really 2007 to 2016, and the Sam Allardyce debacle. If you think about what he inherited, I mean, the, the defeat to Iceland at Euro 2016 was the kind of nadir in terms of tournament exits, I think, personally. I think that broke a, a faith in an awful lot of people. A lot of people sort of basically gave up on England at that point. And then you had Sam Allardyce coming in for 67 days and one match. And then suddenly Gareth Southgate is really called in to clear up this colossal mess. Now, anyone would agree that that is not a promising start. You know, that's not that's not that's not, that's a hospital pass, really. Uh, particularly with all the other pressures that we know go with the England job. A year or so later, he's in a semi-final of a World Cup in Russia, and you can argue all you like about you know who they beat and how they got there and all the rest of it. But still, that was a, that was a, a phenomenal uh, achievement. And at the same time, he's made the players want to be there. I think, as John said, he he has he understands that the, the modern type of player is, is a very different entity than the people he played with, the, the culture that he played in in the late 90s and early 2000s. And he's, he's, he's adapted himself to that culture extremely well, I think, while also setting standards, trying to lift pressure, trying to make it fun and encourage this, this youth development. He knows there are good players there and his job is 
bit like when you're training a horse for the derby, you just got to not get in the way of the horse. You know, do you know what I mean? You've got to, you've got to find it. You've got to find a way to let it develop in its own way and encourage it and, and remove the obstacles in its path. So all of that is done incredibly well while also behaving with this kind of intelligence and dignity that we, that we shouldn't underestimate. The test is always, always, always the knockout rounds of tournaments. The English public gets fabulously fixed, fixated with this idea with friendlies and qualifiers. And, you know, you still see this idea of resurfacing, Mike, that if it's a small country, England should just smash it off the park, you know, and that the rest of the world discovered football three days ago and that all these small countries are there for the taking. It's just not like that anymore. What you do is you you use those games, you have to win those games, but you use them to try players out and systems and, and try to develop the team so that when you get to those knockout games in tournaments, which is which is the only thing that matter, that you're ready to win those games and that you have your systems in place and you know who your best players are and the players know what they're doing and they're committed and enthusiastic. So that, to me, that's that's the way to judge an England manager and, and really... On that score, Gareth Southgate's massively in credit already because of Russia in 2018. Um, second part of your question, uh, I, I think I think I've I've admired the managers who've grasped that principle really, and Terry Venables certainly did. The first tournament with England in that I covered Euro '96, he understood all of those things, I think, and and it was a it was a kind of uh, it was a bit of a funfair ride, you know, but it was, you could see a level of a management, a style of management, a level of control, a level of understanding and tactical awareness and all the rest of it, a sort of cultural empathy, if you like, that, that showed itself in the team and on the pitch. Yeah, I, you know, I, I go back to, to Ron Greenwood, who was the England manager when you know, I first started out, the 82 World Cup, Bobby Robson, Bobby Obviously, Robinson, yeah. you, 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 know, you you work with him, Paul, uh, very, very closely. You know, a man of great substance and humanity. Arsene Wenger, John, a man you know very well, he said last week that he turned down the England job two or three times. How do you think he'd have got on? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, do you know what? I think he would have been sort of more from the Gareth Southgate school. And I'm not sure that that would have worked at that particular time. Listen, I think the one time that basically that it was probably closest, wasn't it, was in the early noughties when basically change management, I think they ended up going for Sven. The FA were clearly interested in Arsene Wenger and then basically David Dean played played a political blinder and he obviously high up at the FA and put them off the scent basically and said go for Sven to say, you know, say Wenger for Arsenal. But I think he would have done he would have done well, I think, because he's just standing in the game and the respect that he was held in. But would he have won, you know, the, the would he have led that golden generation to, to, to glory in 2002, 04 and 06? I don't know. I, I think at that time we were probably swept along with thinking that we were actually better than we probably were really in, in retrospect. We had really great players in, in certain positions, didn't we? Whether it was, it was Seaman or sort of maybe he was coming to the end of it and actually Cole, the centre-halves, you know, midfielder Gerard and Lampard and Skulls moving into to Rooney but I, I I think it would have been interesting but I've I must say I don't I don't want to come across as too much of a little Englander here but I've <laughs> always always thought that basically a, an Englishman should be the England manager because I think the first point of criticism 
is, oh, well, what's he know about it? And I went through a phase of thinking it's the best man for the job. And I do think that I couldn't care less about nationality in, at, at club level. But there's something about international football that over time I've thought, I, I think the only person that can really, really succeed and get the credit and respect that he deserves is, is probably an Englishman as England manager. I haven't always probably felt like that, but I probably do now. The interesting thing about Wenger, Mike, though, is that... Um... All the players from 2002 to 2006 say that Ericsson's direct style, channel ball, in large part, long ball, hit it over the midfield. There was a lot of that anyway. What that did was force them to chase the ball in hot summer temperatures at tournaments. So they were they were trying to win games with 30 to 40% possession of the ball. And and in, in retrospect, they all they all they all regret that. They all think that was a waste, that good players were asked to play that way in tournaments. So but would Wenger have taken over and said, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're going to play keep ball. We're going to play possession football in these three tournaments. And would they have got further than three quarter finals? I certainly think he wouldn't have played that way. He would have tried to, he would have, he would have forced the kind of Arsenal way of playing on the England team. And it would have been interesting to see whether those players could have responded. Mm. You mentioned, John, best man for the job in senior terms. Let's look at the talent pathway and the under-21 team. AD Boothroyd, simple question really, wrong coach at a time of maximum opportunity. Honestly, I watched the game last night, caught the end of the first half because I was doing obviously the game and then basically all the second half and sort of doing the seniors and I just cannot believe that basically it's failed again like this. It felt like the last sort of disappointment under under Boothroyd would be the end, and I can't quite understand why they why they stuck then. I guess it's circumstances as much as anything. And listen, we shouldn't shy away from the fact and hide the fact that basically under while the the other age groups have been outstanding and kind of really developed players, and we've won on on sort of a world stage, European stage, the under twenty ones has been disappointing. <laughs> And one amazing thing was basically I did look at grab out the squad, which finished bottom in the group under under Southgate in 2015, and it's got it's got a listen to this it's got John Stones it's got War Prowse it's got Kane, it's got Michael Keane it's got Jesse Lingard Danny Ings, Ruben Loftus Cheek in there the talent there in, within that group and they were dis- massively underachieving and massively disappointing. And maybe that, so therefore, in fairness to Boothroyd, there is a bigger underlying problem. And the, the one thing that I've seen from England's first two games is that they're playing opponents that, that are together as a group. You can see they're a unit and they are closely knit. There was a talk, there was a lot of talk about a month, six weeks ago that, that, that basically Southgate would pass up certain players because these under-21 games were so important to the group and they and effectively were into a tournament now that they didn't want to see him fail and waste an opportunity for, you know, that sort of kind of tournament experience leading into the summer. And that maybe the likes of Bellingham would be the under-21s. And then sure enough, a few weeks later, Bellingham has excelled for Dortmund against Seville in the Champions League and grasped the, the imagination, said, right, he's straight into the into the seniors. So there is a bit of an underlying here, problem here that we're basically, as soon as we see someone that's really, really good, we immediately fast track them into the seniors so that you can't build a group and a unit. But what really struck me was that in that, in, in that game and the previous game, they don't manage a single shot on target. 
the lack of creativity bearing in mind the talent when you've got an Eze, you've got Smith Rowe, you've got outstanding sort of midfield forward players. I, I, it just defies belief. And that has to be the way that they are play, being asked to play and set up. They don't look a unit. They don't look together at all. I think that comes from a coach and setting the tone. I don't think there was enough creativity. We've got so many good coaches and good outstanding managers throughout the age groups with England and St George's Park. Aidy Boothroyd is just not one of those. I just don't understand it. Aidy Boothroyd has made his name at club level from playing a certain way that goes against the grain at international level. I just, I'll be amazed if England now still qualify. There is an outside chance and a sort of a theory that they could do it, and it's not actually as impossible as it might sound. But they'd be incredibly lucky if it comes off. But if they don't, then really it's time to look in a different direction with the manager because that that group of players cannot fail so spectacularly as they have done this time. Yeah, well, he's been coached for seven years. The only win, tournament win, was in Toulon in 2018. Uh, no wins at all in the Euros since 2017, which are obviously damning statistics. I suppose, Paul, it's a very delicate age, isn't it? You know, I look at the attacking players in that that squad. Hudson-Odoi, Campwell, Eze, Curtis Jones, McNeil of, of Burnley, Brewster... Smithrow, Eddie and Ketia. There's there's promise there, but it's only promise, isn't it? Yeah, and yet the development system with England has been working well for a long time, really, since the whole England DNA St George's Park rewrite happened. The tournament records have been good and the development system has been good. Players are making their way through the levels in a way that they didn't previously. I mean, we could all... We could all spend the next hour reciting names of players who popped up in the England junior teams but didn't make it, and we all wonder why the whole time. But as as, as John just said, the, it's the under-21 level that's the anomalous part of it, and it was anomalous that, that A.D. Boothroyd was given that job from the outset because he just he just his type of work just was was out of line with what everything else in the England setup was suddenly all about under the kind of St George's Park umbrella. And I suppose in the end you have to say, well, well, it it, it must be a, a manager problem because there's no reason to think that those players are, are going astray in any way, or that there is a there is a there is an issue from you know 19 to 21. I, th- I think the progression rate is is good, but they're getting stuck at this under 21 level, underachieving, and they have to work out what the specific reason for that is, and it can only be the manager. Yeah. Okay. So let's go and. You bring things to a bit of a conclusion, chaps, by throwing ourselves into a very familiar trap. <laughs> Can England, or perhaps will England, win the Euros? You know, remembering that the finals at Wembley on July the 11th. Crossy. <laughs> I could do my rabble rousing. Of course we can. Will we win it? Can we win it? Um Sound like oh. something out of Peppa Pig there, mate. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, look, I'd, I'd love nothing more. But I do, I do still think there's better teams than, than, than us. Belgium are, you know, they're held up as sort of number one in the world. But I do think you look at even the likes of France. I mean, France, really. I mean, their squad is, is scary, basically. Germany, Spain. I just think... I'd, I'd, 
we're doing very well, I think, in, in, in the rankings. But are we the absolute best? Well, I mean, they could they could make it, of course, if you get lucky with a with a draw and the way the the way the things fold. I mean, you know, always we I can see it now because I've sort of kind of been looking at the draw and the pathway. Obviously, I've already got my Euro 2020, albeit a year late, sticker book ready. And so, you know, you've got the pathway there. You can trace it. Should England finish second in their group? Should we do that again? Do you remember that? How we looked at that in 2018? We thought the path would be better. I mean, look at the path and how it worked out. It didn't work out too badly in the end, although we ended up playing Belgium again, didn't we? So there's always going to be a bit of a luck of luck element in there. But I think that in terms of in European terms, I do still think we are not in the the absolute top three teams. And I think that's that's the reason why we'll probably fall just short. But I do I think we, we we've had a we've got, uh, had a really good run and we've got an excellent squad. If we can hopefully steer clear of injuries in what is the most gruelling and demanding physically and mentally season ever in the Premier League. Then, then we'll go into in good shape, but I, I, I think it's a big ask. I don't think ultimately they'll end up winning it. Sadly, mm. what do you feel, Paul? Well, what I want to ask Crossy is: Is it time to deliver? Because, <laughs> because every every tournament I've ever covered, that question gets asked about a week before. Is this time to? And the poor old players have to sit there saying. Yeah, it's time to deliver. And then the headline becomes, it's time to deliver. Um, it kind of is time to deliver, but it has been for a long time. I mean, and I, and I think that I'm really I'm sort of a bit nervous about saying that this tournament might come a bit early for this team, this very talented young team, because people just jump straight on you and say, well, what's all this too early nonsense? They, you know, why you can't defer heaven forever. Surely at some point, you have to cross the line and, 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 and get hold of a trophy. I, I understand that logic, but at the same time, if you look at this team, it's impossible not to think that most of these players are just starting out, really, on a, on a path that takes them to their mid-20s, their late-20s, when they'll be, you'd like to think, fully mature, international, match-winning players. And I think, I think England will they'll entertain, they'll excite in large measure at this tournament, but... My worry is that it's, it's it, too many points in games, particularly against the top teams, they might just get picked open or picked apart through the middle at the back of the team and that they will they will concede goals that, that hurt them against top-class opposition, which is not to play down their chances, but I just I just think that they're a, they're a very exciting work in progress and, and the best they could hope for, I think, um, is that they come out of the tournament having looked like a serious international team playing possession football positively, creatively, energetically, because the the context to it is too many decades of England playing the wrong style of play, playing in the wrong way at tournaments and getting punished for it, trying to play too much without the ball, trying to play too much long ball direct football. And if you see a team that's progressed from that semi semi-final run in 2018, to look more like France, more like Belgium, more like Germany, then I think that will be huge progress. And if they got to, oh, I don't want to talk about semi-finals. No, I refuse to. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I just can't even, you know, you know what I mean? You start thinking about a semi-final exit and people say, well, that was pretty honourable, but it's still a semi-final exit, you know. Mm. Realism, it'll never catch on, folks. There's so much to like about this England group, apart, of course, for that wretched band. 
which should be banned, by the way. Um, you know, the, the common denominator of Southgate's England, I think, is youth, optimism, and dare I say, balance, both in a you know moral sense, they're the talking about coming off social media, but also in a football sense. I think we've all, in the past, probably jumped on the bandwagon a little too easily. And our problem is that optimism tends to become counterproductive. Now, look, the world has been changing fast around us. Why can't England's fortunes change? Why can't they fulfil themselves at a major championship? I really hope they do. What do you think? Please let me know. Uh, in the meantime, thanks to Paul and John for sharing their many years experience covering England. And thanks to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.